Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. For those of you who have an interest in whether or not the physical evidence around us matches with biblical creation or precludes it from being possibly true, either way, those of you who have an interest in this subject, and why would you be listening to this broadcast if you don't, I wonder, Anyway, I hope you catch yesterday's show. The podcast is titled, I Exquisitely Designed, and it contains some very up-to-date, very pertinent, and very interesting information about just how phenomenally intricately designed the vertebrate eye is, our human eyes included. This is particularly apropos for a show such as this, not only because The design that's there is extraordinary, and the deeper we look, the more we learn, the better it looks. Not only is that true, but the eye has been used by evolutionists for a very long time as supposed proof that there could not possibly be an intelligent designer because they claim it is so poorly designed. Well, it turns out that the very features that they've been shouting our bad design are in fact not errors, but specific design features to solve technical engineering problems, gaining the best possible performance from the eye. The continued claims that the eye shows bad design are based entirely on ignorance of the actual function of the eye, or they are deliberately misleading. It's one of the two. At any rate, check out that particular show as there's some rather interesting info there. And on my website, there are pointers to several articles that contain additional details, including some very interesting graphics that illustrate some of these design features of the eye. All you have to do is look at it, and it is blatantly obvious what's going on here. So take a look. Now, as I was thinking about the design of the eye and where these photons go, how they're handled by these biological structures within our eyeballs, and what all goes on, including all the way down to image processing. Did you know that the retina has been referred to as almost like a small brain? There's actually image processing going on. It's not just transferring raw data. The retina is a phenomenally complex object. Check out the links on my website to the Eye Exquisite Design blog. And when you think of design features, consider there's a blind spot pointed to by evolutionists as proof positive there's no such thing as a good designer because there's a blind spot in each of your eyes. Did you know that? You've probably heard about that. It's caused by the exact spot in the retina from which the optic nerves attach. However, it's not fair to consider one eyeball in a vacuum. That is, all by itself. The eyes are part of a design. Our eyesight is stereoscopic. We have two eyes. We furthermore have a brain that processes the information received from these two eyes. And guess what? Yes, there's a blind spot in each eyeball. Does it affect the system at all? Absolutely not. That has been taken care of by the design of the overall system. We do not have a blind spot in our vision because the system corrects for what is called an error at the lower level. It's not. It's simply 
a detail of the system, and it is compensated for by the overall system design. System engineering does this all the time. And there are very, very good reasons for the existence of that blind spot within the retina. Again, check out that podcast if you missed yesterday's show. But as I was thinking about the details of vision, it made me think about information. Of course, that may also have occurred because I'm a software developer by profession and have been doing that since way back in the 1970s. And so I chase bits of information all over the place for a living and have done so for a very long time. So perhaps I think more in terms of information flow than the typical person walking around. Okay, since this is an audio production, if you're hearing it, obviously you're listening to it, which given normal course of events means you are registering sound wave impacts upon your hearing mechanism in your ear. Your eardrum is vibrating because the air is moving. Why is the air moving in a way that causes vibrations that are interpreted by your brain as the words that you're listening to right now? Well, let's assume you're using a headset like I do when I'm listening to podcasts out walking my dogs. So I've got a Bluetooth headset on. The headset has little tiny speakers, little membranes that vibrate because of electrical impulses that make them vibrate. When they vibrate, they push the air. The air moves, hits my eardrum. Voila, I hear something. Why do these little membranes vibrate? Because the network, the Bluetooth network, received some digital information from my cell phone. This digital information is handled as an audio source and the appropriate engineering goes on to convert this digital information into vibrations in the speakers. Good old audio file or audio data processing. Well, where did the digital information come from? Well, that came, as I mentioned, from my cell phone or my smartphone, transmitted it over a Bluetooth network, which contains its own whole set of protocols and communication ritual that must go on, implemented in two radios, by the way, the one in your headset and the one in your phone or whatever device you're using to play the podcast. And across that network, digital information is communicated. It originates in my cell phone from the program that I happen to be using to play the podcast. And to keep it a bit simpler, let's assume I'm playing a podcast that I downloaded, so it's actually a file stored in my phone somewhere. So we're reading a file that contains information. We know how to read it because we have software that understands the file storage system. The program knows how to interpret the data within the file because it understands the format for the audio file. Let's say it's an MP3 file. That format is understood by both the program that created the file and the one that reads it and interprets it and acts upon it. So we have a shared convention of language, MP3 file format. Then we have the notion of how that relates to sound waves and the software and hardware that winds up producing those wonderful little vibrations in the speakers that you are hearing as you listen to this. Where did the MP3 file come from? Well, it originated, let's say it's my podcast, so you actually downloaded it from Libsyn, because that happens to be where I store my MP3 files for my podcast. So, 
with some mechanism or another, let's say you're on Wi-Fi at your house or your business, and your cell phone uses Wi-Fi to connect to the podcast feed, and the podcast feed fetches the MP3 file from Libsyn, voila, it gets downloaded across the ether, across a wide area network, say, then across your local area network via Wi-Fi, and you get the file onto your smartphone. Well, where did the file come from at Libsyn? Well, I uploaded it. That's where it came from. I created the MP3 file using a program, Audacity in this case, on a desktop PC, then uploaded it across the internet to Libsyn, and included all the necessary information in the podcast feed so that the tools who understand that communication protocol can fetch the correct file. You start getting the idea that there's a lot of coordination that goes on here that has to be pre-planned and has shared understanding of protocols. Wi-Fi protocols, Bluetooth protocols, wide area network protocols, HTTP, etc. Plus, file formats, MP3 has to be understood identically by both the producer and consumer of the file, etc. There's a lot going on, all of which is coordinated, and all of which uses shared understanding, shared concepts, shared protocols, in order to make it all work. By the way, those requirements are necessary for any communication system. You must have shared protocols understood identically by both the sender and receiver of the information. But where did the MP3 file that I created with Audacity on my desktop PC really come from? Well, the individual bits of that, so to speak, were processed upon receipt of digital information by the Audacity program. Where did it get it? It got it from a driver connected to my microphone. My microphone's actually got analog information in it, which comes from sound waves from me speaking. So I talk, the microphone vibrates, electrical impulses are created, it passes through a filter, an amplifier, a digital interface, a driver, into Audacity, who then says, aha, I know what this is, and I look at a little waveform being created in an audio track in the program that I'm currently creating. And Audacity is smart enough when I'm done to create an MP3 file from that, and then everything else we talked about can happen, and you can listen to it via podcast. Well, let's back it up one more step. Where did the sound waves hitting my microphone come from? They occur when I speak. Well, there's a huge, elaborate mechanism that goes on that allows a human being to produce the types of sounds that we produce. We have an amazing ability to articulate sounds and communicate thereby. But aside from the ability to make the sounds, where does it come from? Why does my vocal apparatus produce the sound waves it's currently producing? Hopefully it's because my brain has some information that it wishes to convey. I happen to be speaking English. You happen to be able to understand English, hopefully. And we're able to communicate. But I think about what I want to say in my brain, and then I say it. My physical mechanism produces those sound waves. The end result of all of this is you hear words which hopefully are put together into coherent sentences, and you understand a meaning. 
the meaning is what I am communicating to you. So now let's focus on the information that you receive and which I am currently producing and sending your way. The meaning of these words and sentences and paragraphs. That meaning gets conveyed to you across this whole huge elaborate scheme that we've just been talking about. All of those mechanisms are material manifestations. They all exist in the purely material world. Sound waves are air molecules, etc. Actually, the movement of air molecules. So the information is conveyed by moving across a whole bunch of different mechanisms in the material world. But the information itself, while it's conveyed materially, is not material. These thoughts I'm conveying to you do not exist as pure matter somewhere. They come into being when I think them. I can communicate them to you. You can understand them. We can communicate information. Information is real. It really does exist. If it didn't, software programming would be a joke. There'd be nothing to do, since all we do is manipulate information. So information is very, very real, and yet it is also non-material. It can be stored in material objects. It can be transmitted by material mechanisms, but itself it is non-material. I mean, think about a CD-ROM. What does it weigh before you record a lecture on it? versus after you record a lecture on it, it weighs the same. The same material stuff is still there. However, it now contains information in its organization. If I stop talking for a few seconds, your ears will still be receiving sound waves, but probably just background noise. You certainly won't be hearing my voice, but the mechanism is still there. The sound waves are still there. The MP3 files still there. Everything else is still there in the material realm, but there would be no information being conveyed from me to you. So think about that for a moment while I'm silent. Now, what is different between the silence and the time when I'm talking? The difference shows up as the particular organization of the vibration of molecules in the air. That is, you hear sounds that you interpret as words that have meaning. Those air molecules do not contain that meaning. None of the mechanism used to convey it actually contain the meaning. They simply communicate it. And in fact, if you did not understand English and you listened to this very broadcast, there would be no meaning conveyed to you. You need the language convention to understand all of this. Interestingly, a true materialist atheist has to believe there is no such thing as information because there is no such thing other than matter and energy, that is, material stuff. And so you have to try to convince yourself that all of this is sort of imaginary. It just happens to arise. Consciousness is just somehow chemistry. There is no notion of an individual actually existing it's just molecules in motion. It's just energy flow. It's just chemistry and physics, nothing else. And information is just particular ways this chemistry happens to behave at a certain time. There's no real notion of some separate thing called information that exists outside the physical realm. Why? It can't be if I'm an atheist materialist because I assume 
as the basis of my entire belief system that there is nothing else. Now, what I find really interesting is before I speak these words, before I do the research and assemble the things I want to talk about, I have a concept in mind. There's something I want to convey to you. It exists as a concept. I then elaborate on the concept and the individual details of it sort of come into being. They're still not material necessarily. The concept isn't material, but I can impose it upon the material realm. I can communicate it to you by material means. I can type it into my blog on a website and you can read it later. So it's got some persistence of storage. There's all kinds of attributes to it, but I created it from a non-material source. Now think about this briefly in the realm of the concept, the biblical concept of who God is as creator. When he was asked his name, his response was, I'm the I am. It's as though the notion of his existence is absolutely fundamental to everything about God. He exists. He has always existed. He always will exist. That's not true of the physical realm, however. And in the discussion, the description of the creation of this physical realm, where does it come from? It comes from the very word of God. He speaks it into existence. Now, I can speak words and I can convey information and concepts to you. I cannot speak something into existence from nothing. That requires a transcendent God. The God of the Bible, that is. He literally spoke the universe, everything material, into existence. And it came from his concept. He created man. He literally said he created man in his image. So he had a concept for man. He had communication and fellowship directly with man in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve spoke directly with God. So the original creation was a manifestation. It was God's concept. Man was created in his image, which included free will. It included the choice to obey what God says or not. And unfortunately, man chose not to obey. And by making that choice, we forced the situation in which God no longer would have intimate, direct, face-to-face communication with man. Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden. And as a direct result of their sin, their disobedience, they received a curse which included becoming mortal. Death would now occur. The universe was affected by this curse. It is now a broken universe. You need to understand that what we see around us is not the way it was when it was originally created. The biblical description of the original creation, for example, includes no death. The Bible also describes what's going to happen when Christ returns. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be no more curse. There will be no more death. It will be done away with. We will see face to face like we did in the Garden of Eden. It says we will know as we are known. God knows us now, but we don't see him clearly. We see through a veil. All of that will be restored when Christ returns. And that is what Christians who believe the Bible are looking forward to. That's something worth seeking. 
seecreationmythormiracle.com. 